Welcome to the We The Possible podcast, a new series where we explore global pursuits for freedom, dignity, and opportunity. I'm your host, Laurie Moy. Every year on December 10th, the international community observes Human Rights Day. It's a day in which individuals, institutions, and governments reflect on the universal rights of everyone and take stock of what we are doing to protect them. In this episode, we are going to hear about a few of the ways people around the world are supporting human rights, and how that work is providing freedom, dignity, and opportunity to those in need in Swaziland, Uganda, and in the Middle East. Let's get started. Freedom is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and it's a concept that's easy to take for granted, especially when you have it. But when freedoms are taken away and you find yourself unable to think, say, or do what you believe in, life becomes increasingly difficult. Difficult is an understatement when it comes to describing the life under the control of ISIS, or the Islamic State. People living under their oppressive control do not have the basic freedom of being able to say what they think. And I'm not just talking about protests or demonstrations. Simple conversations about the challenges of everyday life can be dangerous. Speaking out against ISIS can, and often does, result in punishment, sometimes death. But there is a campaign underway to provide a safe place for people to come together and express their views. It's called Raise Your Voice, and is produced by a special team at the Middle East Broadcasting Networks. I sat down with Omar Fakeki to find out more about the project, what it is, and how it supports the freedom of people in Iraq. Well, Raise Your Voice is... Um, um a campaign we started in uh, 2000, late 2015. It, it, it has three components, uh, TV uh, shows, radio show, and, uh, and the digital side of it. Um, I am the managing editor of the digital Raise Your Voice, which is really the backbone of the initiative, uh, the whole initiative. Um, what we do is we um, report on important issues uh, to people in the MENA region with a focus on Iraq, um, anything CVE related, counter-violent extremism uh, related. Uh, um, we report on them through uh, reporters here uh, in the newsroom and reporters overseas. Um, and then we take our reporting, we take the product, product and disseminate it through our social media platforms. Um, and the whole initiative is based on engagement uh, so we take the product to social media platforms to engage with the audience um, we ask them questions about the information we're putting out there um, and we ask them about their opinions um, it is really a free uh, platform for um, our audience in the MENA region um, to express their um, fears, their concerns, their opinions over uh, the root causes of uh, extremism. Um, may it be uh, unemployment, uh, human rights, women's rights, children's rights, or corruption in government, uh, any kind of uh, um, issues that really concern the audience. After we take it and put it on social media, uh, we, we, we put call to action in every single post we put on either Twitter or, or Facebook or other platforms. So we ask people, what do you think of this topic? We're discussing, for instance, um, unemployment in Iraq. Um, so tell us what you know about unemployment in Iraq. We have these numbers, we have these anecdotes we got from our reporters. What do you think about them? So people come and talk about whatever they know about unemployment in Iraq. And then you see threads starting to uh, uh, appear on, on this particular post uh, where people are discussing why they don't have jobs, what they try to get jobs, uh, what they think are the reasons why they can't get jobs, um, how that is related to um, creating uh, an environment suitable for extremist groups um, to uh, fish for uh, recruits. Um, and then they, the audience will start to give solutions to these uh, problems. 
uh, for instance, if we were talking the other day, we asked uh, one of our posts was a question, a simple question. What do you think should happen in your country to eradicate extremists? So people started to give uh, um, their their suggestions, their uh, solutions, if you will. Um, some said um, we have to provide jobs for the young so they don't have they don't become prey for extremist groups. Some said we have to. Um, uh, update our uh, religion uh, curricula. Um, some said we have to start at the you know elementary school level and and teach people, teach students and children human rights, um, and and so on. So it's really a place where people do not have um, boundaries to discuss. Um, the important issues they they want, but they have to be respect, uh, respectful of the um, community. So we don't we do not allow profanity. We do not allow, uh, you know, people accusing each other of being you know, you're a criminal. You're you're a bad person. We don't allow that. Well, we tell people you should be respectful, so your your voice will be heard. It's, it sounds a little bit like it could be a recipe for uh, a bunch of trolls getting together, <laughs> getting into a fight. Like, how do you how do you keep that level of conversation where it's productive? So we have for for engagement, um, we have a team of uh, community managers. We call them community managers, and they're twenty four seven. Our community management operation is twenty four seven. So they monitor all our social media platforms. They jump in when. And they see uh, the the discussions are you know taking an off direction, and we also their part of their job the community managers is to actually encourage people to discuss these issues. So when we see people are going offline, we bring them back by asking questions related to the topic we're discussing in the in the post, um, and when we see people. You know, when we see a chance for profanity coming, we come in and say, well, we ask you to be respectful. We remind you that we do not allow profanity. And if you do, we are going to delete these comments because we don't want our audience to be offended. Um, and for the most part, really, we find that people very much respect the uh, discussion, um, even when we're discussing very sensitive issues, including Shia, Sunni issues or differences or, or uh, extremists and, and you know the likes. Why is it important to to engage the audience rather than just, I mean, you mentioned that you have the television and the radio programs. Why is it important to have this conversation um, beyond that? Well, very early on, we decided that um, Raise Your Voice should be um, for the people. Not only we do not preach, we just give information and ask people to join in and give us more information or give us their opinion. So we we realize um, early, we realized early on that um, what is missing in the MENA region uh, is a free platform for people to discuss these important issues, especially when we see most of the media outlets are very polarized and people don't feel they belong or they trust one or two or three uh, media outlets. They don't know where to get unbiased and balanced uh, um, reporting and information. So we thought here's a chance for us at MBN and, and BBG to provide this platform for people where we have a very um, high journalistic product we put out there and ask people to engage on it. And we've seen from uh, people's engagement, uh, people really appreciate uh, having this platform available for them. And they started to trust uh, raise your voice to come back and discuss these issues. Another suggestion was by uh, uh, one of our followers on Facebook uh, who said um, you need to talk about the um, widows of the Iraqi fighters who are fighting, who were fighting against Daesh. Um, so we thought it's related to the um, of course, our mission. So we we, we decided to um, spread a whole episode on the radio show to that uh, topic. Radio 
um, we brought uh, an official from the Ministry of, I, uh, I believe, the Ministry of um, Social Services, I think, uh, in Iraq. And we discussed this issue on on air for an hour, and we we took calls from uh, people. So one of the callers to the show um, was a woman who lost her husband in the fight against Daesh. He was a, a, an Iraqi soldier. She has children and she said she's she spent month, months to try to get the pension, which is in, she's entitled to by the uh, from the Iraqi government. And she couldn't and she doesn't have money to go from where she lives to the center city center where she has to go and file um, the paperwork again. The official on air um, asked, told her, promised the woman that um, she was going to call her and arrange something. We followed up with the woman uh, a couple days later. Um, the official gave her an allowance, uh, a one-time stipend, and she um, put the paperwork on track for that woman to get the monthly um, uh, pension. She put it on uh, fast track. So that's that's one of the uh, impact examples we have. Uh, one of one other example was um, we uh, dedicated a whole episode to um, the um, people who are trying to help uh, orphans in Iraq, um, and uh, we talked to this uh, organization, a representative from from an organization who who had no place to um, to have to help these orphans. Um, we followed up with that person in the organization, and a few days later, um, an Iraqi man just donated a land to that. Uh, after hearing about it uh, on on uh, Radio Sawa, uh, donated a land to that organization so they can build something and and they can house uh, their efforts. Wow! So it really sounds like you're connecting people not only to each other but to organizations and and government. Yeah, we have a, so many examples of this. We have many videos we created about efforts to help in Iraq in any way. For instance, after the there was a big bombing uh, a few months ago in one of Iraq, uh, Baghdad's uh, neighborhoods, um, and we did a video about efforts to rebuild uh, that neighborhood because it was devastated. Um, we have so many, and when we posted the video on Facebook, we had so many uh, people who came and commented and said, we want num phone numbers for those people because I'm a, a day laborer, I can help. Uh, I, I, do t I, I do tiles, I do you know street pavement, I can help for free. And we see on these threads, people are giving their phone numbers so they can get in touch and help with these efforts. It's, it's amazing the way uh, people are coming together through through our platforms. Can you tell me a little bit about um, who are the people that engage in uh, in this conversation, either through Facebook or through the call-in show? Um, who is your audience? Well, we we cater to everyone, really. Um, we, we see our audience tend to be, I think, between 13 and 30-something. Uh, but our content is for everybody. We have people who have totally different ideas from what we present, um, including Daesh sympathizers who come to our uh, platforms and, and try to tell people that Daesh or ISIL is uh, is good and it represents all Muslims. And, and of course, we come in uh, as community managers, we come in and say, well, you're entitled to your opinion, but the facts show different. And here are links to uh, um, articles or videos we've done with facts uh, from the ground showing that Daesh is a bunch of criminals and they kill innocent people. And here are the facts. And we see the community also coming together and, and trying to challenge this rhetoric from the uh, Daesh uh, sympathizers. Um, we have, and, and sometimes we, they're not 
Daesh sympathizers, but they just don't agree with us, but they still respect the platform and come and, and discuss important issues with us. I have an example of this. Uh, one commenter who said, and I'm quoting here, although I don't always agree with you, I believe you respect different opinions and provide a platform to discuss important issues with no bias. And that to us shows us, well, it really sums it up. We are, we are trying hard to, to bring this high quality journalistic content and put it, put it out there. And people come, whether they agree or they don't, and discuss these uh, important issues. I'm imagining that some of the people who are either tuning into the radio or TV shows or who are trying to engage in this conversation are in some areas where it's dangerous to have these conversations. Um, are, do you ever get a sense that, that people are risking their, their lives or their safety to, to be engaged? We actually have many examples of people calling from Mosul, from inside Mosul, from Hawija, uh, from uh, Tikrit when it was still under Daesh control. And um, I remember one of the callers to our show said, I am now calling you from Mosul. I have my relatives uh, watching around for Daesh people if they come so I can uh, hang up and go and, and um, hide because if they see us, talking on the phone, they will kill us. And that's the kind of determination uh, that people have to bring the message out. And that's exactly why we have Raise Your Voice. People feel that Raise Your Voice is bringing their message out to the world, and it's worth to risk their lives to get the message out. And frankly, they don't have any other outlet but Raise Your Voice as, a, as for now. So would it be accurate to say that, that Raise Your Voice provides um, a level of freedom that they wouldn't normally have? Raise Your Voice definitely provides a free platform for, fee for people to go and discuss what concerns them. Um, if, you, um, if there is any other platform that I certainly don't, don't know of, but if there is any other platform, it will definitely be polarized. And that's why people are coming to Raise Your Voice or MBN platforms in general. They know we're unbiased. We don't have um, a, a, a direction other than to really allow them to, have, to, to express their right for uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of expression, um, and um, they see on online, they see that their their opinions, no matter what they are, they are being published. They're they're actually live uh, um, because you know on social media it's, it goes live. Uh, we just do not allow profanity, and that's about it. Everyone is free to express their opinions, and we see, we see, um, we we now have, we're comfortable to say we have a loyal base of fans that they're on our platforms every single day, and we're getting more and more every day. Um, it must be tough having having this interaction with people who, um, in some cases, are so desperate to be able to to share their voices and share share their stories. What does, what does a good day look like for the Raise Your Voice team? Well, as long as engagement is going, that is a good day and that is a good week. And so far, we've seen our numbers only go up in terms of numbers of fans on our social media platforms or our numbers of readers. Uh, on our website or engagement in general. Um, I had a very good day, uh, I, I, what I describe a very, very good day uh, of Raise Your Voice, I think a week or a couple weeks ago when we had um, two people of totally different minds, different ideas, discussing the issue of, I think, uh, Daesh represents Islam or Daesh does not represent Islam. And you see throughout the thread, um, they're going at it. They, they're presenting their ideas and they, you can feel the tension um, and then at the end of the thread each one of them was telling the other that no matter what we said uh, and we disagree but we're still human beings and I respect your opinion and you respect mine and that's all that matters and to me that that's a really good example of how Raise Your Voice is bringing people together um, they have different ideas, but they still respect each other. That that embodies what Raise Your Voice is. It sounds like um, that's that is so such a different um, 
presentation of how we think of conversations going in an ISIL held territory. Um, it almost seems like raise your voice is providing some kind of level of dignity to people having these conversations. It is definitely, it's the level of dignity and people want to know that they are being heard. And that's what we're providing. We're provi we are listening to people, we're talking to them, we're talking back to them. Um, when they ask a question, we come back and answer. And when they want to discuss something and they want us to cover it, they know we are going to cover it and they see it the next day or the next week. They see it covered. So uh, I think people are desperate. They, they, they can always raise their voice, but they can't always have people listen to them and engage with them. And that's what we're providing. It's, it's someone who listens and respects your opinion. What, um, what are some of the topics that you'll be covering uh, in the next few weeks? So, um, this week we're uh, d uh, discussing how the civilians have been the civilians in Mosul have been affected by the uh, offensive in Mosul to liberate Mosul. Um, so we're, we've been covering this for the past two weeks since Mosul started. Next week we're going to uh, discuss how Daesh is um, is the enemy of all the um, religious and ethnic sects in Iraq and how it could maybe unite them against uh, that enemy. Uh, maybe that enemy is uniting Iraqis um, to do take action against it. Um, and we just discussed today also uh, having um, an, uh, an uh, another uh, week of uh, women's rights uh, issues. We've covered it uh, two or three times so far and we're coming back to it because people really want uh, it, it generated a lot of engagement and people, our audience was very interested in it. Um, so we will spread a whole week for uh, women's rights again. What's next for Raise Your Voice? Well, I think raise your voice. In in the past thirteen, fourteen months, we've seen an increase in uh, in interest mm -hmm. and engagement on our platforms. And I think raise your voice is has provided a very needed platform for people to uh, discuss the important issues. And um, I always say, raise your voice is here to stay. One of the least tangible but most impactful byproducts of human rights is dignity. Victor Ochin knows all about dignity. Victor grew up in northern Uganda in a camp for the internally displaced, and his experiences growing up there taught him that peace and understanding are prerequisites to any other form of development. In 2015, Victor was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the African Youth Initiative Network. The network has provided medical and psychosocial rehabilitation for thousands of people affected by the war in northern Uganda. USAID's Betty Kagoro sat down with Victor and discussed his childhood growing up in the IDP camps and how this experience has both shaped him and inspired his human rights work. Victor, you're most welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, Betty. Thank you so much for hosting me here today. Thank you, too. Mm -hmm. Victor. You have been a remarkable champion on peace building and human rights in Northern Uganda since you were a very young man. Yep. Can you briefly share with us your story of growing up in an IDP camp and how this led to you becoming a civic leader, a peacemaker and a leader? Yeah, uh, it's my pleasure once again, uh, Betty and the audience. Uh, it's my joy also to take part in this very unique, important global uh, debate on what matters about issues of peace. Mm. And also, like you said it very well, I was born and raised in Northern Uganda in my little home village of Abia. Abia, my community, like in other parts in Northern Uganda, was well known for brutality of the Lord Resistance Army and also the cattle rustling by the Karamajong cattle rustlers. At the same time, it's one of the hot spots that suffered a lot during the oil spirit movement of Alice Lakwena. So you can imagine that is the region I grew up in, I, in a place that has been defined by histories of horrors, of conflict, uh, suffering and uh, atrocities and all that. So I'm one of the kids who grew up there, was born and raised there. So growing up in the camp, 
uh, growing up amidst the conflict, uh, witnessing the horrors of brutality and human rights violations kind of shaped my world when I was a child. I could see every single day I woke up, I was losing a friend, either to abduction, either to diseases or being blown up by the landmines or some of the kids were even committing suicide. Mm. So this is the kind of society I grew up in. I'm also one of the kids who did not only learn about this, I experienced it. I grew up running to take care, to survive, hiding in the bush every single day of my life. So living in the war zone, living in the camp was life of miseries, was life of suffering without food to eat, uh, without security, you're not so sure about tomorrow if you are not going to be abducted, Oh, the biggest worry was, if your mother who is going to fetch water will come back on my life, not being blown by landmines. Mm. I grew up witnessing and fearing that my sisters would always be abducted and sexually abused like many others I saw in the community. This is the society I grew up in, but it was a society defined by suffering, horrors, and death, and fear. And we didn't have education either. I am one of the kids who struggled with my studies. I struggled a lot. I paid myself in school from primary to where I can speak a little bit of English right now. <laughs> so it's a struggle that, you know, as a child growing up in a place where you know your parents cannot afford to buy a pencil, this is how poor they were. They didn't take us out of the community, not because they did not want to, but they didn't have capacity to take us from our village to relocate us to Lira Town. And we were the first families to live in the first internally displaced people's camp in northern Uganda. So I witnessed, and one of the people did witness the first unaccount of human rights violations in Northern Uganda through all these layers of wars. You were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015 for your work on behalf of the war crime victims. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what the committee was highlighting in this important recognition of your work? Yeah, it is true that in 2015, the American Friends Service Committee, which is uh, one of the leading historical humanitarian organization uh, did nominate me and my organization, the African Youth Initiative Network for Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, this came amid the period when my organization, which we formed it primarily to help us mobilize youth and communities participation in promoting peace and justice, we were caught up struggling to help the victims of LRA war in Northern Uganda to pursue justice. We're working closely with the International Criminal Court. We're promoting community peace and reconciliation. And then we were struggling because we were caught up. There has been like a stalemate of lack of progress in arresting the rebel commanders of the LRA. So to victims, life was losing meaning. Hope for justice was dying faster. And we couldn't make sense anymore to the people to tell them that choose justice, remain non-violent, choose peace. Because we're saying, how can we talk about peace if people who made us suffer are not given to face justice. And all of a sudden, as we're struggling, and these long years of struggling, long years of pain, sacrificing opportunities in order to remain in the community to help our people, all of a sudden, I was called and informed by the American Friends Service Committee that we've presented your name to the Nobel Committees in Oslo for recognition. You are the possible potential winner of this uh, prestigious Nobel Peace Prize, 2015. And I thought about it, I said, what are you talking about, guys? <laughs> are you talking about Victor Chen and Ainet of Uganda, or are you talking about another Victor? I said, we are talking about you. And then I said, why do you think I deserve that? And then they listed how they have tracked me for the last many years, my work, how we've been working to support the victims' repairs and reintegration. We've been providing reconstructive medical rehabilitation to victims of gunshots, of mutilations, women were sexually abused. We had helped thousands of them. Right now, as I talk, we have helped over 10,000 victims in Northern Uganda. And above all, we've been promoting peace. We said, even if we have seen the worst in life, we should still choose to be the best in life. Yeah. I even heard that you started taking victims of war and those in need on your bicycle to the yeah. health facilities. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the neighborhood villages. Yes. How was that? Well, actually, how we started, I must appreciate Straight Talk Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Straight Talk Foundation and a communication NGO I worked with in 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 Kampala. I was in charge northern Uganda, mm. and I Straight Talk gave me space to get access to internet, to access to computer, but also it gave me space to reach out to the population I was very concerned about, passionate about. I was working in the IDP camps across northern Uganda. So what happened? As we were starting the initiative in 2005, we didn't have money, we were not so educated, we didn't have resources, no computer. My first computer I bought with a salary from Straight Talk. Wow. So that is the most important. I use Straight Talk computers to, during the day, I would do Straight Talk work. At night, I have my laptop doing my work. So I wouldn't sleep mm -hmm. to ensure that we do something. But when we started the initiative, there were so many people who need assistance, but the NGOs who were present couldn't reach everywhere. Yeah. And we said, okay, now what to do, guys? What, how do we help people? We are talking about peace. We are talking about justice, but it means nothing. Because some of them come and say, Victor, we know you are so passionate and you are so sad, you are struggling to help. But how can we talk about peace when we have all these war wounds in our body? When you have bullets retained in our body, we have our children who are abducted in captivity, they have never come back. And you're telling us to talk about peace and reconciliation. How do we talk about peace with our women sexually abused and they're suffering from fistula? These are practical things that we need to address in order to make peace meaningful. And such kind of questions, whenever we went to the community, it opened our eyes and then we asked ourselves, if the peace we are talking about is the peace the victims want, if the justice we are talking about, justice the victims want, and what is our definition of human rights? Are we being compassionate by proxy or we are being compassionate by you know, practice? This is what the, I, I remember asking my two teams, said, how can we make peace and justice a reality mm -hmm. to the victims? Yeah. Not for the government, not for the ICC, but to the victims. And then they say, if that is the question, then let us embark on providing assistance that seek to heal the physical and emotional injuries people are facing. So we didn't have money, we didn't have anything. I remember applying, I came also to to US Embassy, you're looking for funding, I never got it. <laughs> Actually, I was not allowed inside, security couldn't allow me. Mm. I went to UN, I went to many organizations. There was no way, they would say, you are too young to think about what you're talking about. You're talking about peace, you're too young for that. And I said, okay, we had two bicycles, and the bicycle, I got it through straight talk. <laughs> So the bicycle, my team and I would ride bicycle as far as 20 kilometers mm -hmm. to look for victims in one of the IDP camps to take them to the next camp where they were doing medical treatment because some camps didn't have team medical team going to assist them. So we could go and ride bicycle, ferrying people between camps to another camps and all that. So what was happening? It was happening on the peak of heavy humanitarian presence in northern Uganda. There were fleets and fleets and tons of heavy humanitarian aid vehicles from UN to all international NGOs. They are powerful vehicles, trailers and all those things. We wanted only motorcycle, but none of them gave us. So what we did, we could ride our bicycles, sometimes in the dark, amidst the heavy humanitarian aid vehicles. And what we suffered from the most <laughs> was not lack of money then. It was the dust from the humanitarian aid vehicles. Wow. We could come back to town, and every time we came back, people call us Muzungu. <laughs> 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 because the dust will have covered our dark skin, and it's called brown, it's like a, a white person's skin. So we'll write them our names, and they call us Muzungus. And then said, okay, that's good. But we did that for years. We didn't have money, we didn't have anything. But that helped us. And our motivation was even building stronger. We asked the NGOs, can you put us in your car to take us? Then they come back and say, no, 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 you have to contact our aid officer in Kampala or DC or New or London or New York. I said, oh, no way. You are just getting away, shutting us up. But we had so many reasons to give up, but we never gave up. Okay. That's really, really interesting. Yes. <laughs> Talking of UN, I understand that you are UN's ambassador for goal 16 on peace and security of the new sustainable development Yes, goals. yes, yes. <clears throat> what does that entail? Uh, as you know, yes, it is true that I, in 2015, 2015 actually was my year 
UN asked me that we are launching up this SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, and we want to see how to popularize it, how to make it. And we're talking about a component of goal 16, which is peace, justice, and strong institution. We looked around and there's nobody else who we think is more passionate and practically the person who can attest to what it means to have peace, justice, and a strong institution than you. And then I said, okay, that's perfectly fine. I'm honored as long as it's not just going to be a celebrity status that's taking me away from my community. I want to be in my community. And I make it always very clear. I don't want to go out of Africa. I want to be home. I'm part of the change I seek in the continent. I want to be here. And then they said, perfect. And I said, well, as United Nations, it's a good thing to think like we are coming up with a sustainable development goal to replace Millennium Development Goal. The difference between Millennium Development Goal and Sustainable Development Goal is, one, Millennium Development Goal was about effective system to deliver services. But Sustainable Development Goal is about people. And Goal 16 particularly, peace, justice, and a strong institution. Development is not possible in the absence of peace. And peace is not sustainable without a stronger pillar of justice and accountability. And when I, whenever I come on board, I come in not to tell about what I studied. I come in not to talk about what I researched. I come in to speak about the life I lived. As someone who grew up in conflict, I know what it means to be in war. I know what it means to be a child caught up in this kind of injustice. So to me, my role is there to, to promote Goal 16, not only in Uganda, but all over the world. I have a global mandate to do that. It's the most timely thing that we should talk about because the world as it is, is headed for more conflict. That's very inspiring. Mm. So, Victor, tell us, what are your organization's efforts in advancing a global commitment to human rights at a local and regional levels in northern Uganda and across Africa? Yeah, uh, that's a very important question to us because if we are forward-looking, we cannot uh, think about Uganda, think about northern Uganda, and stop there. We have to think about Africa, Every human must be given opportunity to live and enjoy the benefits that come with life. But you see, in Africa, we have a very troubling, turbulent history, from slavery to colonization, and actually what we are, what we are going through right now, the post-colonial time, we are, we are going through what we could say domestic colony. We make it very clear to the young people that we are the peace generation. We are the generations in waiting. So what roles do we want to play in order to work for the next generation? This is what we ask ourselves. And we are saying, one, let us make peace popular. Can we make war fall in total disfavor among the young generation? And also let us admit that we need change in Africa, especially in the continent, that has suffered the most. But what change, how, what would change look like? What would the new Africa look like? The change we are looking for, we shouldn't embrace injustice to bring about change. We have a generation that fought their ways to power, but we are packaging the message and telling the young Africans that we are the peace generation. We are not the generation that should kill our ways to power. We should love our ways to power. We are the generation that are the true witnesses of the histories of injustice, but also we are the generation that can bring about the total change in our community. This must be done now. This can only be done when you plant new seeds of peace in the young people. So what advice do you give the youth of Uganda today, especially since 78% of the population is under 30 and is predicted to double mm -hmm. by, 20, mm -hmm. by 2040 to yeah. 80 million? How must programming respond to this growing trend? Yes, Uganda's population growth is worrying. But also like in other African countries, the youth are the center of attention. The youth are the center of opportunities. They're the center of fear. All right. <laughs> They're the center of hope. And they are the center of violence as well. We always talk among ourselves of that. What roles do young people play in conflict? And what role can they play in peace building? They play more role in conflict than they play 
in peace building. Because the system comes into favor, traditional leadership system, religious leader, political structure, and they forget about these infantry fighters whose agenda is they're told to rape, to kill, to destroy. But these people need to understand they're human, even when they're acting, they're like human. And I have always said that the young people of Uganda should remember we are 54 years into our independence. But where is the independent Uganda we claim if majority of people in this country are still languishing in poverty? We don't have equal opportunities. There's no equal development. Uganda today is actually lagging behind in the entire East African region in terms of development. We are not doing well at all because development comes with change. You cannot expect development to come without much change. I think change is necessary, but the change we are looking for is not merely political. Political change is one change, but the attitude change is more important. Change the attitude of the citizen of the Ugandan to know that you don't need to kill before you get to power. You don't need to, you don't need to destroy before you become you know, rich. You don't need to steal. But the system as it is today, corruption has crippled everything in the government sectors. Impunity, there's very thick ethnic blanket that blocks all process of justice. You cannot, you see abuse of power and you want to pursue justice and there's that ethnic blockade that you cannot go beyond. I think I worry about who will take over at some point. The situation is difficult right now. So what I would say, the young people of Uganda, we have witnessed a very tough and difficult, painful history. Let us pay respect to our ancestors who struggled so hard for the independence of this country. But let us not embrace their hate, their hatred against each other, their political intolerance against each other. We cannot embrace that. Let us embrace the only way we can pay tribute to those who struggle to help us free ourselves is to be peaceful, be tolerant, and pay tribute and respect to our commitment. I was, I was a child. My first experience with child, it was, it was so troubling at one particular moment when I was taught about the national anthem. I remember asking my teacher, the first stanzas talk about peace, justice, equality, prosperity, development. I asked the teacher, can you explain to me this in Luo? And then the teacher said, no, we cannot do it in Luo because we don't teach in Luo, we teach in English. I said, I want to understand. And the teacher said, okay, if you want to understand, come to staff room where there are the teachers. And you know, whenever a teacher calls you to staff room, that's already disastrous. <laughs> so I said, I'm coming to staff room. And my classmates was like, wow, you're in trouble. I went to classroom and this teacher said, no, this young man said I should teach him in local language. First of all, he's violating the Minister of Education's policies and he wants me to explain to him this one in particular, the national anthem in the local language. And they were saying I should first be punished for speaking local language if I wanted to be taught in local language because there was a policy that you speak local language, you are punished. I said, I'm ready, you punish me and then you translate it to me. I want to understand it well. And then one teacher said, let's give this kid a chance. Why? Why do you want to know this in local language? I said, I don't get English very well. I did not study so well. I skipped classes to where I'm, I'm not getting what you're talking about well, but I need to understand this. They explained it to me. And by the time this teacher was finishing explaining, I was crying. And then he asked me, said, why are you crying? Did I insult you? I said, no, you did not insult me. Just because every good thing about this country is in our document of freedom. In our constitution, we sing every day in our national anthems. That kind of awareness, I realized how much injustice I was exposed to. It's so difficult to be peaceful when you're not given peace. That's really, really, really strong statement there, Victor. Thank you. So can you tell us about someone during the course of your work that has left a lasting impact mm -hmm. on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps a victim, yes. a mentor, yes. or a youth. Let me begin with uh, with a victim. I identify so myself so much with the victims of war. I'm one of them, and I 
but people left lasting impact in my life. There is there are many, but there's one particular child called Michael. Michael Otema is my lovely son now. I adopted him, I would say. It was one day when I was struggling to do work to reach out to the communities to look for victims to take to the hospital. And this time we had money to get a motorcycle. My motorcycle broke somewhere in Pade. So and as it broke near the school, there were kids playing near the school, which was also occupying the IDP camp. And then as I was trying to work on my motorcycle with my colleague whom we went with, these kids were playing next to me and asked me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to look for somebody to treat, to heal. I said, what kind of person are you looking for? These are the kids. I said, is there anyone whom you know as a child who is injured by war and all that? And I said, yes, we have one. There are many, but there's one we have to take you to. They walked me to the home of Michael. I saw Michael's father. And Michael's father said, what do you want? I said, I've come to see Michael. I said, he's in that small house over there. It looked like a toilet. It was a grass such house which he had lost all the grasses except the apex, which had a little bit of grasses. And the door was covered with a broken, torn apart, you know, sisal sack. So when I, I walked, said, that's the toilet. I said, no, it's in there. So when I walked inside, before even I walked, I hit the, the, the door cover, the, 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 the sack that was covering the door. There were like hundreds, if not thousands, of green flies. Whoa! I said, no way. I was struck by a horrible stench. And I said, what is this? I looked down. I saw a child lying in the, covered with a dry, you know, wet mango leaves. Flies all over him. I saw a human being looking weak, exhausted, sick, the eyes yellow, is dry, scaly, malnourished. And I said, this is a human being. I was crying, actually. I carried him. When I saw the leg was bleeding, they were like, there was discharges of spurs on from four spots. I was actually working with straight talk still. But I sneaked out to do my work out of straight talk. <laughs> it was a weekend, actually. So when I, I got my call on my chest, I brought him out. The flies were like chasing me. I needed like a doom to spray. I was crying. And Michael looked at me, he was helpless. I don't think he had even eaten. And the father said, where are you taking him? He said, I'll take him to the hospital. He said, you're wasting your time. I've traveled everywhere with this kid. And I said, what happened to him? He said, Michael is the only survivor of an attack that happened five years ago. That killed his mother, killed 22 other people. He was the only child who spent a, a night on the back of his dead mother. Mm. He was shot. The mother was shot. They fell dead at around 4 p.m. He was also shot three times in the thigh. You know how African women carry kids in their back? He was only eight months old. Yeah. But he did not die. He felt, and the mother felt frontwise, and they, you know, the kid was found the next day at around 10 a.m. when the uh, UPDF were doing the operation. When he told me the story, I was even crying mom. I didn't have car, we didn't have money. I was using my straight talk per DM. <laughs> <laughs> I got per DM and I said, what am I doing anyway with my life? I was sad. I walked to the road, I stopped the vehicle, said, can you help me take, take us to the hospital with this kid? Then they said, no, I cannot. Actually, there was one of the UN vehicles said, if you want me to take you, you have to call protocol office in Kampala. I can give you the CD, what codes. I said, are you insulting me? Come on. <laughs> I'm saying, put me in the back of the pickup. I don't even want to be in front. I'm going to carry Michael. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. He drove away. I got the private taxi, uh, public taxi. I said, can, you, can I sit in front of Michael? The driver said, yes, sit with him. And I said, I'm going to pay for all the seats. Can we go? I gave him the money. And then as soon as we took off like less than a kilometer, the driver got out of the car and he said, this stench is beyond. I cannot drive. I'm also a human being. I cannot. I was left crying there with Michael. But what was interesting, I, I said, let me take you back home. Then I'll go back to Lira and I'll get my car. I rode the motorcycle. I left in and I went and picked my private car, my personal car. 
I came and picked him, took him to the hospital, to Lacho. But from Lacho, although the doctors told me, well, like, you have to amputate this kid. Say, no, do not, he's too young. Say, look at how he's suffering. There's nothing you can do. We have seen him before. He has been here, but there's been no way. The only thing you can cut off that leg. Say, no. And now I said, I'm going to take him to Kampala. They said, please do. I tried to come to Kampala. I was kicked out of the buses, public buses, four times with Michael. Because he was smelly, sick, and all that. Everyone has said, no, we cannot take him. I was kicked out four times. I did not give up. I took him home, to my home in Lira. I stayed with him for two days. I was negotiating with the bus. If they can allow me to sit somewhere, I can pay for all the seats. I was bathing him and all that. So then I came to Kampala. I ran out of money because I'd used my own money. I took my call. He was not treated because they were saying I should pay some money, which would be like $500. I didn't have that money. I ran out of the money. I jumped in the bus. I went back to Lira. I was looking for my writing proposal. Every time I was writing, I would see Michael running in my computer. But one thing, after a year, without money, I got money, I brought him, I went and brought him to the hospital. And the father said, we're not going to be there. You have to go and hire somebody to take care of him. I said, no problem. I talked to the doctor, we agreed to work on him, and he opened his leg, put it up. For three months, Michael was playing football. Wonderful. But one thing, that changed my life. Yes. Apart from Michael's sad story. After I knew he was already playing football, I was walking with him. I have a photo with him walking, practicing to walk. Bought him clothing and all that. I called his father, said, can you come to the hospital? And the father said, no, I'm not going to come. And he said, if he's dead, just bring his body home. I said, why are you being very negative? Said. I know we have already had a meeting yesterday. If he's dead, bring him home. Don't mind. You're not going to be in trouble. You have tried your best. We appreciate that. I said, come on, come. Then the guy said, I'm not coming. I don't have money. He said, I'm going to pay you. Come, come. I said, okay. And I promised to buy him more food for home if he came. He came as he was arriving at the hospital facilities. I was playing football with Michael and my son. He saw Michael. He started, is that my son? I said, yes. He started crying loud. I said, why are you crying? He said, no, he's my son. He's okay now. I said, And he said, yesterday we had a meeting as the clan at home. And we said that Michael had suffered too much in life. So the best to do is to poison him to die so that he can rest. When he told me this story, I was also crying and I was so sad. I said, no, this is... He's here, now you can do what you want. Because, say, no, 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 I cannot, because it's okay now. But what changed my world is, I didn't know I was struggling to help Michael to heal from the injury suffered as a result of gunshot by the Lord Resistance Army. I didn't know I was saving him from his own families who were so sick and tired of him, they wanted him to death. But I did what I did to save him from both dangers. He's my child, I love him. He's one of the 10,000 people we have treated in Northern Uganda. And I took him to school, so he's back to school. I visited him recently, he told me he wants to be a, a bank manager, and I asked him why, not a doctor. I said, because I think there's no money in this world. I need to give people money. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one story that changed my world. I, I helped so many people. I get so traumatized so much sometimes but have a wonderful team of people I work with. We struggle to raise money. And also, you know, of course it's a struggle, but we're happy to do what we're doing. Thank you very much, Victor, for sharing your story with us. I'm sure many young people listening to this will get inspired to become champions of, of peace. Thank you so much, Betty, and God bless everybody. Bless you too. Opportunity is a set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. Much of democracy and human rights work is about creating those circumstances, especially when it comes to labor rights. 
In October, the United Nations Special Rapporteur Mina Kiai released his report on the Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and Association. Mr. Kiai has spent the last 20 years campaigning for human rights and constitutional reform in Kenya. USAID's Jessica Benton Cooney sat down with Mr. Kiai in New York and asked him about the status of global labor rights. I, th I think, I think, generally speaking, there's a there's a general decline in terms of human rights and and labor rights, which is one of the reasons why we did this report to highlight the fact that these are the two sectors that are having real real challenges, real assaults by states especially, but also by other forces that don't want labor rights or don't want human rights. And across the world, there's a, there's a real there's a real effort to try and delegitimize human rights, to delegitimize labor rights, which you've seen in different ways. So that's why this report's there. In terms of um, bright spots, I think the brightest spots you find is when is when labor and others come together. I would like to say that I think Chile, for example, mm -hmm. is a bit of a bright spot where, where labor unions work with student movements, work with human rights, and they're able to push and articulate and in fact pressure government to start making amendments. For example, now the whole running issue in Chile around, around uh, changing the educational system. That's coming from labor, it's coming from students, coming from civil society. So there's some places where you think, you know, you can see that happening. But generally speaking, I think, I think across the world, we are, in a, we are in a situation where there's a sense of intolerance, authoritarianism, autocracy is coming back. And, and the old systems of doing things and the old ways in which the world used to talk about this have, have declined. So you... And that, and so the, so you've got, you've got, you know, people coming out and being absolutely clearly xenophobic and racist, and and getting away with it. I think, I think we can say now that one of the new normals is xenophobia, is the language mm -hmm. against refugees. For example, how, for example, Europe dealt with the refugee crisis, where they literally violated international law to be able to satisfy something was not was this is going to haunt them and haunt the world for a while we're not in a good spot we're not in a good spot and so the bright spots for me are where there are social movements where people are resisting where people are organizing where people are moving forward that's what's a bright spot that despite how hard it is people are people aren't giving up people aren't being defeated people aren't being cowed they're organizing they're working they're risking they're coming out day after day after day after day those are the bright spots. It's, it's the it's the it's the people. It's the umbrella movement in Hong Kong that says, you know, we're tired of this. Let's organize. It's it's workers in Cambodia who say we're going to fight this. We're going to try and resist this. It's it's all over the world. It's in Africa where where groups have changed things. It's the Treatment Action Center in South Africa that organizes people so well. So the bright spots are the people of this world who have refused and refused to be cowed. That was Special Rapporteur Mina Kiai in New York at the release of his report on the Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and Association. Also in New York that week was Vincent Nkongwane from the Trade Union Congress of Swaziland. Nkongwane works with Swazi workers and helps them to stand up for and demand their rights in an environment that bans unions and free speech. Here again is USAID's Jessica Benton Cooney, who spoke with Nkungwane on the challenges his organization has faced and how the global labor solidarity movement is positively impacting labor rights in Swaziland. Vincent, hello. Hello, hello. You have become a recognized leader for your tireless efforts to press for reforms and stand up for Swazi worker rights. Can you briefly share with us your story of how you have come to be here today and what it means to you? I've been invited by the Solidarity Center to be here so that we are able to exchange views with other activists about the problems that we face. Because in Swaziland we do face challenges regarding the issue of assembly and association. Of course it has as a link to the political setup in Swaziland. But we have been assisted by the international community and also other governments in a way, like the US government for instance, as regards trying to persuade the government of Swaziland to respect human and worker rights. Um, you recently received the AFL-CIO's 2015 Human Rights Award, which recognized the courage and persistence of Swaziland's workers in demanding their rights. Can you tell us what the award was highlighting in this recognition of your work? It was. In fact, it made also the workers appreciate that the struggles that they are engaged in are not local. They are being recognized internationally. And that these are just, that's a just struggle. 
and that is what I think is going is giving them the oomph to continue struggling for what is right, and that is right. What are your organization's efforts in advancing labor rights for Swazi workers, many of whom face physical, legal, and organization security issues? What do you think continues to motivate these workers despite the risks they face, including imprisonment? The clear example, for instance, was that even those that doubted that the struggle does have paid dividends was the issue of the registration of the Federation. The Federation was still registered in 2013 because government took a dim view of it. But government was forced to register it in May 2015. That's a clear indication of what international solidarity does. And further, government has been put in a corner where Swaziland was put in the special paragraph of the ILO. That that was only because of the engagement with the international labor movement. So these are the struggles and the outcomes that give confidence to the workers in Swaziland push on. Can you tell us the story of one of the workers you have met that has had a lasting impact on you? The workers that have been, there are a number of workers who have been beaten up when they are protesting, but they realized that uh, the story of Swaziland is not going to be kept locally. And a clear example they had was the pressure that got the release of a, a lawyer and an editor who were jailed for exercise of freedom of expression. They realized that pressure does pay dividends and therefore that gives them to understand that they're not alone. The international community is there looking out. So that makes them to keep on pushing on fighting for the rights of social workers. And that gives us the appreciation that we've got to continue pressing because that is what gets the social government to move when pressure is applied consistently. Where do the majority of people learn about their rights? It is difficult to that, particularly, for instance, because we do not have access to public electronic media. And that is the mm. method through which they would hear us speak directly to the issues, not just to read about that because we write in the newspapers, but the government has such control that it has cut us out of such media. and. Those are the problems that we're having currently. So is it overcoming what they have known as status quo, what has been normal for them for many years? And then do you sort of educate them on the concept of labor rights and human rights? We do the best we can with our members. What we do not have is access to, but we are relying on our colleagues in the civil society uh, sector to be able to do that because we realize that uh, we've got to work in hand in hand with civil society. For instance, the majority of the sources live in the rural areas. In the rural areas in Swaziland, it is not easy to get even meetings going, particularly meetings that are seen by the authorities to have a political bent, because that's how they would view such meetings. But civil society, as they go and talk about other issues, are able to spread the word about human rights. And we do it on our part to the workers directly who are members of the unions. What opportunities do you think that they have now that they didn't 5, 10, 15 years ago? It's an issue of uh, strengthening the trade unions to be able on a more uh, direct level to spread that confidence that you have these rights, but it doesn't help if they're in the law. You've got to be able to even prosecute so the Federation is engaged in that and also assisting the trade unions to do prosecution. Because without prosecution, there's not much, there's not much you can do. We can't rely on the Minister of Labor, which has failed the workers dismally. A number of the violations are violations which could easily have been stamped by the Ministry had it done a qualitative meaningful inspections and it's not, it has not been doing that. So it falls on the trade unions to be able to do that. And that is what we are getting on, particularly with since our registration about a year ago. Mm. Um, what has been the impact in Swaziland since the decision this year for the US government to suspend its participation in the African Growth and Opportunity Act and make worker rights a key component of restoring its trade eligibility? Undeniably, <clears throat> there has been a loss of jobs 
and the loss of jobs has been hard hitting because a worker in Swaziland uh, supports between eight and ten people. So there is that big loss. However, what has happened with that, it has forced the government of Swaziland to amend legislation that was impacting negatively against worker and human rights. Out of five benchmarks that were set to, gain, to regain eligibility to ACOA, Swaziland has amended three of the benchmarks. What's remaining now is to amend the Public Order Act and the Suppression of Terrorism Act, which acts were not so much to deal with terrorism or public order, but they were largely used to stifle internal dissent. So we are saying, now that government is pushed to a corner to have to make the amendments, we hope that we'll see the improvement in terms of the exercise of various rights by workers and the people of Switzerland generally. How is the global labor solidarity movement um, that was exhibited here today at the United Nations uh, positively impacted the labor rights situation in Swaziland? And what areas do you think the country still needs to continue to evolve? The international labor movement has helped to keep on highlighting the case of Swaziland. In terms of the International Trade Union Confederation, Swaziland is one of the countries that are regarded as countries at risk. That keeps the Swazi case in the eye of the international community. And it is our view as organized labor that for as long as Swaziland is kept in the international eye, the authorities are going to be circumspect in the manner in which they deal with uh, worker issues and even more broadly human rights issues. That is what we want to see happening. For us, what we think is also going to assist Swaziland, because for us, so the, the, the problems of Swaziland are largely from a political perspective. So if the international community can be able to push Swaziland to make the necessary changes for democratic peaceful change, that can deal with a number of the problems we have, even from the labor perspective. And what do you think all of um, the this meant today? What were the main takeaways that you think were um, coming from the room and from the discussion? When you leave here today, what is the thing that you're going to take back to your workers and your organization? One of the things that one has learned here is how effective it has been for labor not to work in isolation from civil society and what other civil society organizations are doing to be able to collaborate with labor. That's important. And also the experiences that you've been sharing and how they've been dealt with in other countries. Uh, one would hope that we keep the communication going so that it does not end in this one day uh, get together in New York, but we're able to take back and continue the, the conversation. Thank you very much, Vincent, for being here today. It was a real pleasure to speak with you, and I wish you much luck and continued success with your labor rights movement in the Swaziland. <laughs> Thank you very much, too. That's all for this episode of We the Possible. Join us again as we hear more stories of people in pursuit of freedom, dignity, and opportunity around the world. We the Possible is a co-production of the United States Agency for International Development and the Broadcasting Board of Governors. For more information, please visit us at usaid.gov or bbg.gov. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Laurie Moy.